So I'm going to start, of course, by reading the letter to the church at Pergamum, which we're going to be studying today. Um, as you know, this is the third of the letters. Uh, our purpose in studying these is to listen to and hear the word of God, to understand Jesus' message to his churches, um, and to become aware of what Jesus is saying to his church today. And even more specifically, we want to know what God is saying to his church in the UK, to the church in Loughton, and to us as a local body of people. Um, so as a reminder then that we're studying these letters, as we go through these, we're also asking you to seek the Lord with, with prayer and fasting to hear what God, what Jesus wants to say to us. Um, please share anything that you receive with us as leaders as, as we all seek God together. So here goes, I'm going to read the verses from chapter 2 of Revelation, beginning with verse 12. So to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So as with all the letters, Jesus starts with a revelation of himself uh, with a particular emphasis, often one of the elements uh, that we've seen in the vision in, in chapter one. I really like what James said earlier as he was starting to, to lead worship. He said, just uh, sit, sit and listen and imagine uh, Jesus in front of you uh, as he probably is. And he really is. The, <laughs> the revelation we got in uh, in chapter one was of Jesus walking amongst golden lampstands and the lampstands represented the churches. Jesus is walking amongst his churches and that he is here and he is present. Uh, we may not have the same kind of revelation, but the truth, of, uh, as in we can't actually physically see it now as John did then, um, but the truth uh, is unchanging. So we need to take note of the particular revelation of Jesus that he's speaking to this church. Jesus's long, double-edged, sharp sword is associated with the words of his mouth, the words of God. In Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And in the same way, this is a, a penetrating letter. 
as it reveals and exposes compromise within the church in Pergamum. But to start with, as in most of the letters, Jesus begins by bringing assurance and commendation. I know where you live. Well, if that was spoken in Debden, it would probably sound more like a threat. Um, But these words are spoken by Jesus uh, to, to bring comfort. Jesus is saying, I see, I understand, I appreciate. Nothing is hidden from my sight. When you're finding things hard, I'm aware. I care. It doesn't go unnoticed. So why does it say where you, I know where you live, which is where Satan has his throne? Well, the commentators seem to agree that no one knows for sure why this description is given to Pergamon. And that hasn't stopped loads of speculation. And of course, when a good or interesting story or explanation is put forward, many people adopt it as fact. But we do know that there was a lot of idol and emperor worship that took place at Pergamon. That's true, of course, for a number of places. Um, but here we know that somebody was actually put to death in this in their city for their faith. Whatever the reason, it was clear that this was a, it was a very dark place spiritually and a tough gig for the Christians who lived there. At some time, uh, it might be good to examine what we know from the Bible about principalities and strongholds in the spiritual realms, examining uh, what it means where Satan has his throne. From Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we learn that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, we should put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, and it certainly uh, had in the case of Pergamum, we may be able to stand our ground, and after we've done everything, to stand. And we don't have time to look into that now, uh, that whole subject, but the emphasis is that Jesus sees and Jesus understands, and he commends them for remaining true to his name, even in the days of Antipas when he was put to death. Now, nothing more is written about Antipas in all the contemporary writings. So we don't know, really, uh, the circumstances in which he died. There were some things written about him, but these were probably centuries later, so we can't attribute any weight to them. So, yeah, we don't exactly know. But this was clearly a very testing time for the Christians. Uh, I imagine that Antipas was a leader of some sort. Jesus describes him as my faithful witness. And clearly, when he was put to death, the temptation would have been to renounce faith in Jesus in case the same thing happened to you. Um, Yet, Jesus says, you remain true to my name. In other words, they continue to identify with Jesus, saying, I am his, I belong to Jesus, continuing to say, I believe in him. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he, he died for our sins and he rose again. And I refuse to worship Caesar or any other God even though that may have cost them their lives. Like the believers in Smyrna that Rich talked about last week, they were willing to die, not loving their lives, even unto death. It's so challenging for us to be reminded of that and what Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And this saying of Jesus appears six times in the Gospels, There is no other saying of Jesus that is given more emphasis. 
Now, although in this country the threat of death feels a long way off, uh, we should remind ourselves that his calling on our lives is a serious one. And while the heart of God for us too is to enjoy joy everlasting in his presence for eternity, as David often reminds us, in this life you will have trouble. But again, Jesus knows, and Jesus sees, and Jesus understands. So now we come to the corrective part of the letter, the things that Jesus wants to put his finger on and allow them to change by the grace offered by repentance. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So what is this teaching of Balaam? Well, this Old Testament character gets surprisingly frequent mention uh, in the Bible, and, but the actual original story is told in Numbers 22 to 24, and I will describe it briefly to you with a bit of background first. So the Israelites, having left Egypt uh, after some decades, uh, were making their way north uh, on the, to the east of the Sinai Desert, where they'd been roaming. Uh, and they were making progress on the east side and going uh, off to the, to the east of the Dead Sea. And having had to go a long way around Edom, who had refused them passage through their land, they were then attacked by Canaanites, but the Israelites defeated them. And then they asked the Amorites whether they could go through their country, again, keeping to the main road, which was called the King's Highway. Um, but instead, the Amorites attacked them. But Israel defeated the Amorites and took over lots of their territory and settled there for a while. And then uh, another king called Og of Bashan uh, also attacked them and the Israelites defeated them. Now, all this greatly disturbed Balak, who was the king of neighboring Moab, who was worried that they would be next on the list, even though that may not have been true. But he sent a delegation to fetch a prophet from a long way away called Balaam, offering him money and asking him to put a curse on Israel so that he, Balak, could confidently march against the Israelites and destroy them or drive them away. Now, Balaam appears to be a man who is very spiritually aware and knows who the God of the Israelites is, that is Yahweh or Jehovah, yet does not appear to be in submission to him. He is more of a, a pagan prophet and he's a reputation for pronouncing blessings and curses, uh, but through pagan divination and sorcery. And at first he refuses to go to Balak, but after the second delegation, God speaks to him and tells him to go, but to only do what he says. But Balaam is in rebellion against God, and for reasons that are not explained, God sends an angel to stand in the path to oppose him, uh, causing his donkey to act very strangely for which the donkey three times receives a beating. Then God amazingly opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey asks Balaam why he was beating him. Um, to which Balaam replies, you have made a fool of me. Um, comically, the argument with the donkey continues until God then opens Balaam's eyes so that he can see the angel. Uh, and the angel says, why have you been beating your donkey? He was only doing the right thing. Um, if he had not uh, done what he had done, I would surely have killed you. But I would have spared the donkey. 
the angel allows him to continue, but the condition is repeated that Balaam must only say and do what God says. Uh, something to note here that it's possible to be spiritually gifted and charismatic, but in, if one's heart is in rebellion against God, um, then that's, you know, that is possible. When we went through the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus said, be aware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And he also said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, this is shocking, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Uh, it's, not about, it's not about the gifting, it's about the heart. Mm. To be sure, we want to be spiritually gifted and to demonstrate God's power and love through healings, miracles and other supernatural works. But the things that will mark us out as Jesus' disciples are our obedience to him and our love for each other, genuine character and the fruit of the spirit rather than the gifting. Yeah. Anyway, Balak took Balaam to a high place overlooking the camps of Israel where he set up altars and offered sacrifices. But God spoke to him and made him call on a blessing on Israel rather than a curse. So Balak, the king, who really didn't get it, took him to other places to try again. And this happened three times uh, in all, but the same thing kept happening. And finally, Balak gave up and sent him away. So although it's not recorded in numbers, what is inferred from Jesus' words here in Revelation is that Balak asked Balaam what he could do instead of cursing him. And the prophet advised him to undermine Israel by tempting them to rebel against God, infiltrating and inviting them to the sacrifices to their own God to eat at religious feasts and engage in sexual immorality with their women. And this is described in Numbers 25. It's uh, the episode that happened immediately uh, after uh, the time I've just described uh, with Balaam. And it's clearly portrayed as a calculated strategy on behalf of Israel's enemies. It resulted in God's anger burning against them and 24,000 people, probably more than any other of the judgments of God against Israel at that time, they died in a plague. Now, two things are mentioned here in our Revelation passage. The first is eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, this was an issue for the early church established in the Gentile Greek cultural areas. It was recognized by the Council of Jerusalem, in which you read about in Acts 15, who sent a message out when they heard that the Gentiles were receiving the gospel and being saved. Although they recognized that these new believers were not required to keep the law of Moses, they urged them nevertheless to steer clear of four things, uh, which included food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. Later, Paul addresses the issue of food sacrifice to idols when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, and he told them they were free to eat anything in the marketplace. But if anyone says this has been dedicated to an, dedicated to an idol, they should not eat it, not because an idol is anything, but because it will send a wrong message to anyone watching. And later in chapter 10, Paul says, 
The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, although there are perhaps parallels with other things that might be considered idols in the culture in which we're living now, eating food sacrificed to idols itself is not a big issue to us in the church in this part of the world. Yet the other thing mentioned, which is sexual immorality, definitely is. And I believe uh, that as the Moabites had a deliberate strategy to undermine Israel by mixing in their culture of worship of their God, who was called Baal of Peor, so Satan has a deliberate strategy to pressure us into accepting and adopting the moral values of our culture. Just as Israel was camped in a region where they were surrounded by people who had different values and morality, so we need to recognise that, so are we. While the moral values of the world in which we live are constantly changing, and in fact have changed dramatically even in my own lifetime, our own morality must be shaped by God and by his word. There's so much teaching about sexual immorality in the New Testament to the churches. Jesus had a lot to say about it, for example, that it's not what goes into a person that makes him or her unclean, but what comes out of them. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony and slander. The Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, I've already mentioned. Um, Paul teaches in many of his letters that we must avoid sexual immorality. And uh, so does the writer to the Hebrews. And I'm going to touch on that in a while. In the letters to the churches that we're studying, Jesus points it out specifically here and in the next letter to Thyatira. In Revelation 21, the seriousness of sexual immorality is brought home when it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And in Revelation 22, it's warned further and it says, outside are the dogs. That's figurative. Don't get worried about it, dog lovers. Um, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So what does sexual immorality mean? When Paul and, in fact, the other Jewish writers teach about it, I imagine there would be two reference points in their mind. So the first is the Ten Commandments, which say do not commit adultery, and possibly also uh, the Tenth Commandment, which says do not covet your neighbour's wife. And there's a, a list of sexual sins in Leviticus 18, which uh, states people that you should not have sex with, including close relations, those you are not married to, people of the same gender and animals. But Jesus, as we read in the Sermon on the Mount, challenges us even further regarding our sexual morality. In calling out the sin of lust, he says it's not only about what we do outwardly, it's what we're thinking, it's what we're imagining. We need to flee sexual immorality, steer clear of it, and get to a point where we don't tolerate it, even in our own life. If you're struggling with this, please don't struggle alone, but talk to someone trustworthy. And no one should allow themselves to have a judgmental attitude because which of us have lived up to Jesus' teaching in this area? Totally. So while the teaching on sexual immorality is clear and in clearly including what was going on in the church in Pergamon, the next bit can be interpreted in two ways. And it all hinges 
on the word likewise or in the same way. Now, most translations use the words such as, such as these because it says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here are the two possible interpretations. Number one, there are in fact two groups influencing the Pergamon church. Those who follow wrong teaching, which is illustrated by the influence of Balaam in the Old Testament. And also another group who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans, whatever that might be. And the second interpretation in, in it saying, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching. It means you have teaching who hold to the Nicolaitans. This is just like the teaching of Balaam in the Old Testament. Jesus mentions the famous story of Israel being enticed away to sexual immorality and idol worship to powerfully illustrate the kind of influence the Nicolaitans were having on them. There were not two groups being addressed, but one. Well, the Nicolaitans, you'll remember, were mentioned in the letter to Ephesus that we heard two weeks ago. Jesus said to the Ephesian church, you hate their practices, as I do. They clearly had a big influence uh, on the church at large, as they're mentioned by several non-biblical writings uh, at the time, yet not in a way that tells us exactly what they stood for. But this is what we do know about the Nicolaitans from Scripture. First of all, it was well established. The Nicolaitans are mentioned, as I said, in other writings. Secondly, the Nicolaitans had a doctrine. There was teaching. They had associated practices. The teaching uh, resulted in, in practice. And then finally, that Jesus hated it. Um, so which of those interpretations uh, are we going to go for? Were there one group or were there two? Personally, I think probably the second that Jesus tells, uh, talks about Balaam uh, to illustrate the influence of the Nicolaitans, which if it's true, then tells us more about the kind of things they were teaching. But it's worth mentioning that often you come across a long debate amongst interpreters, commentators and other theologians. But when you consider what difference it makes to you and your own response and your understanding and how you're going to live your life and follow Jesus, it doesn't really make any difference. And this is the case here. Um, whether there were one group or two, the message is totally clear to us, isn't it? Now, the next command is repent. This doesn't appear to be just directed at the particular people who are getting influenced, but the whole church for tolerating it. Jesus is calling to account the whole church. I've spoken before about this kind of corporate responsibility we have for what goes on amongst us, as well as things that should go on, uh, as well as the things that should go on, but in fact don't. Um, we live in quite a society which is probably increasingly individualistic, and it's all about me and, um, and what I do. Um, but certainly uh, the, the biblical message is that there is such a thing as corporate responsibility. In Hebrews 12, it says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And then it says, see to it or see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. The, the uh, words in Hebrews are not just written to leaders. Uh, they're not just written to individuals, see to it yourself, but to the whole church. 
So let's be willing to look out for each other, steering each other away from sin and wrong influences, not with insensitivity, yet speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is a lot easier to do if you've already taken the trouble to lay a foundation of love. But this is what should be happening amongst us. As Jesus said, his command is to love each other as he loved us. And love in the Bible is always practical, never just sentimental. In Colossians, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, if you don't repent, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In these letters, uh, and in particular, this letter and the next one and the one after that, Jesus uh, talks about he says, I will come to you. Um, is he talking about his second coming, the coming on the clouds that's in Revelation 1-7 or the second coming foretold in, for example, Acts 1, Mark 13 and so on? It doesn't appear that he is talking about that, that coming. Um, it appears to it's more that he's, he's coming by, by way of judgment. And I think uh, most people that I've read on this consider the same thing that that this coming is not talking about his second coming it's talking about uh, a, a coming in a way it's a visitation it's a disciplinary coming uh, involving the powerful words of God in this case I will speak I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth perhaps these words of God will be spoken through prophets um, or perhaps simply Jesus speaking powerfully in the heavenly realms, exercising the total authority in heaven and earth that has been given to him. The fact is that in his mercy, he wants to give them time to repent before, before he comes. And that suggests that his coming and wielding the sword of his mouth will be a more devastating blow to those who are engaging in the sinful practices. Would you want Jesus fighting against you with the sword of his mouth? Repentance is the much more attractive option. Now, as in all the letters, we're exhorted to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That is, church is plural. It's not just what is, what is he saying to all of these, and we all need to hear it. And by hearing it, we mean really getting it, actively considering it, applying it, being changed by the word, not letting it just go straight past us with no effect. Um, the promises that follow um, are to the ones who overcome or to those who are victorious in the, the modern NIV. What does overcoming here for the church in Pergamum? It means repenting, dealing with the sin, holding fast to the obedience to Jesus and holding firm to the end. What does overcoming or being victorious mean for us? What does it mean for you? What do you have to overcome? What do you need to do now? this day or this week well three things are promised to the overcomer some of the hidden manner a white stone and a new name written on the stone known only to him who receives it manna as you know was the, the bread that God provided to the Israelites to sustain them in the in the desert we can have quite a negative view of manna, and the Israelites often complained about it. Uh, maybe the negative view might be because it was interim, it was sustaining, it kept them going, 
you could live on it, but it, it wasn't going to delight you. Um, but that overlooks the fact that this is that the, the manna is bread from heaven. It was supernatural food. It was God's provision. Um, perhaps the hidden manna is the best stuff yet to be revealed, more than sati satisfying, delighting those who eat of it. It is the stuff that uh, that will sustain us and even now uh, can sustain us. And what about the, the white stone? Well, if there is a void of information about something in the Bible that many people want to fill the void, and so you end up with a lot of speculation. There are theories about it being a voting stone or a ticket of entry into a banquet or some kind of counter um, a, or something that uh, declares not guilty. Um, but all of these, again, are, are speculative uh, as to what Jesus meant by it. And it's best to admit that we don't know what it means. But its most important function in this scripture is it's the object, it's the medium on which is written a new name that God will give to you who overcomes, written on your own personal white stone, a name known only to him and to you. This is a personal gift, emphasizing our specialness to God, our being known by him. The concept of name in the Bible, as you know, is not just about an arbitrary, it's not just an arbitrary identifying label, but the names have meanings and the meanings are significant. When Jesus gives us a new name, it will be personal and full of meaning, perhaps revealing how he sees us. What does your white stone look like? A smooth pebble that fits into your hand or a well-cut rectangular block? Whatever that stone is like, the name that is written on it will be even more special. I'm going to stop there. We've got to the end of the letter and uh, I'm going to hand over to Julian.